This morning, as we continue our 13-week series, which we've entitled Church Basics 101, I want us to consider the issue of unity. As I thought about all the different introductions I could use about how bad their disunity is in our nation and so on and so forth, I thought, forget that. But for the introduction, I want us to understand how important unity is in the life of the church, and I want us to turn to John chapter 17 and Christ's high priestly prayer as he makes request of his father on behalf of his soon-to-be church. The church would be born on the day of Pentecost, and it would live until today, and one of the reasons it lives is because of the unity of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to listen carefully to these words as we read verses 13 through 24 of John chapter 17. And Christ is talking to the Father. And he says in verse 13, But now I come to you, and you could say, Father, in these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's praying for his disciples at this point. He's praying that their joy would be made full in himself and in their relationship with God the Son and God the Father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from, many translations say the evil one, but it probably just reads the evil. There's plenty of evil in this world, isn't there? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself for they themselves also may be that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth he says i do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word and who's that that's us we are in a long line progression of those who have come to know the truth the one who is the way the truth and the life john 14:6 Then he says that they may all be one, verse 21, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Mark those words. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in what? In unity. As we dwell in the Father and the Son and they dwell in us, we are perfected, matured in unity. And he says, so that the world, this is the reason, may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Remember he asked for the restoration of his glory right at the beginning of this time. And he says, uh, and now he's asking that his disciples would see that glory and see the fulfillment of their salvation and glorification. He says, for you love me before the foundation of the world. It's a wonderful thing to know that we've been in Christ, Ephesians 1 says, from before the foundation of the world, that we've been predestined to adoptions as sons and daughters. And now there's a certain amount of redundancy in this prayer. And for good reason. 
He over and over talks about the word of God, the truth. I have given them your word, verse 14. Sanctify them in the truth, verse 17. Your word is truth, that they also may be sanctified in the truth, verse 19. Then twice he reminds us directly that we're not of the world, even as our Lord Jesus is not of the world, verses 14 and 16. We're, as a church, to be based in the truth of God's word, and we're not to be like the world. It's something the church is very much losing these days. They have kicked the doctrine to the curb, and they are very worldly to attract the world into the church, which leaves the world unregenerate because if you're not proclaiming the truth in the church, then what, what are you doing? Putting on a show, having a good time, a concert, uh, you know, everybody loves the music, and the uh, preacher gives a feel-good message, and everybody goes away unconverted. That's a tragedy. That's in defiance of our Lord's word. Three times he requests that, that we would be one, even as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, that we might also be in the Father and in the Son. Why? Read verse 23 again. That we may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. There's a reason for unity. It's that people would look at the church and they would go, wow, that is a supernatural thing. The Father sent the Son and He loves those people. Look at how He deals with them and how He gets them through this world and the trials and tribulations of this world. Three times He makes that request. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, that they may be one, even as we are one, Father, you and me, and I and you, and they also would be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. There's a tremendous abiding. I, I was reading on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a big theological thing the other day, and and it was talking about in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon or would empower somebody to do some great act, and David begs for the Spirit not to depart from him, and, and the Spirit did depart from Saul, and so on and so forth. But in the New Testament, the Spirit dwells within us, and it gives us a supernatural power to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. And he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and we'll look at that in a minute, but it's a supernatural thing. Twice Jesus gives the world the right to determine whether to believe that the Father sent the Son into the world and that the Father loves the Son and loves the church based on our oneness or unity with the Father, Son, and each other. Three times that's requested. That's pretty amazing. Anytime Scripture repeats itself on something, we better listen up, right? So if you want to know why unity in the church is so important and why Satan works so hard at fracturing that unity, there it is. The basis of unity is the Word of God, as Craig was saying earlier. The reality of unity is that we are not of the world, we're not to live like the world because we are supernaturally empowered by the Spirit, 
And the importance of unity is that as people see that, they believe that the Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. So we see that unity is no trivial matter. You know, we take it pretty lightly these days. It's not a very trivial matter. We've, we try to manufacture unity, and we'll see that's impossible later on. We, we start the ecumenical movement, and let's kick doctrine out and just, you know, wrap our arms around each other and hug each other and uh, everything else that you can hug. And that's not unity. That's stupidity. Unity in Scripture, as we're going to see, is based on very concrete factors. But incredibly important. It's no common attribute. It is to be at the center, the heart of the church. In fact, unity is so important that God sent his own spirit to personally indwell every believer and to corporately lead his church, as we're going to see. As we look at this today, I want you to see three facets, and you can follow along in the outline in your bulletin, uh, that comprise the supernatural unity in the church. First of all, the unity of the Spirit we're going to look at. Secondly, the diversity of the Spirit that leads to unity. And then lastly, the mutuality of the Spirit that maintains the unity. These are all supernatural characteristics. These are not things we conjure up on our own, although man tries repeatedly to conjure these things up, and the church tries to conjure these things up, when really what we're all to do is just maintain it. It's already there. So first of all, the unity of spirit. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't hear too much rustling of paper. Ephesians chapter 4. This is an epistle Pastor Craig referenced several times last week, and uh, because it's all about the church. For the first three chapters, he tells us who we are as the church. For the Last four chapters essentially tells us how to live as the church and how to practice being the church. And uh, in this particular section, the apostle defines for us the unity of the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 6. Let's read it. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. And first thing we need to ask is, why is it therefore, therefore? Well, because of what he just said. He said we're to be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would be at home in our hearts that we'd know the love of Christ and comprehend that, we'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says, Now to him who is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, verse 20, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul wrote this from prison. These are one of the prison epistles. He says, implore you, I beg you, I beseech you. The word means just to literally get on your knees and beg somebody. He's begging the church at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, working hard at, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says this, there's one body, one spirit. You were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's amazing truth. Now, Paul tells us here there are two sides to unity. 
There's the practical side, then there's the theological side, which governs the outworking of our practices, because sound biblical doctrine is the foundation upon which the church is built. If you don't build the church upon the foundation and the principles of the Word of God, you're not in a church, you're in a who knows what, maybe a social club. Maybe uh, if there's no gospel preached that's biblical, if there's no word of God that's preached that's biblical, you know, a guy throws in a verse once in a while, that's, that's uh, you know, sprinkle a little sanctifying salt on whatever you're trying to get across. But if you could give that sermon anywhere else besides a church, there's not much truth being spoken. There's two sides to unity, the doctrinal side and the practical side. Now, the practical side demands obedience, walking or living in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And to do that, we must be empowered to incorporate many virtues into our lives by the Holy Spirit, a few of which are mentioned here. There are many things the Holy Spirit would do in and through our lives, and a few of them are mentioned here. One is humility. The virtue of seeing and serving others first, like Christ. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> I hope you catch the pun on that, but it's about two pages to your right. And verse 2, he says, therefore, he's talking about our great salvation up in verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's the power of the church being unleashed. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and this is what's called a first-class conditional clause, it means since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion to be had in Christ, Make my joy complete. How, Paul? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, be unified. You'll make the apostles joyful. I mean, that's what any pastor, any leader, any preacher of God's word wants to see in his people. He wants to see them joyful and full and and living the life and, and glorying in Christ Jesus. And then he says, uh, well, if you're going to fracture the unity, you're going to do it by being selfish, conceited, not humble in mind, and regarding yourself as more important than others. That's what fractures unity. That's what fractures relationship. That's what fractures churches. And then he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He's not saying you've got to be some kind of freak that just, just uh, you know, totally disregards your own life and uh, your whole life's in shambles, but boy, you're ministering to other people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying minister to others and keep your life right with God at the same time. And he says, have this attitude or this Humility of mind, verse 3, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He lifts Christ up as the ultimate example. I love that because that's really where it's at, isn't it? 
two weeks ago, we saw the humility of Christ in our Christmas message, who, became, who came not to be served, but to serve, it says, and give his life a ransom for many. We're to be like that. We're to be like him, it says, seeing others as more important than ourselves, seeing their needs and humbly serving one another, because humility of mind is essential for maintaining the unity of the Spirit, as is gentleness. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Just a couple pages to the left. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 30 through 32, Paul exhorts the Ephesians, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. There's basically two commands in the Scripture concerning the Holy Spirit. One is be filled or be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The other is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm happy he adds this. He says, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. I'm glad that when I do sin and I do grieve the Holy Spirit, when I am selfish and demanding my own way and that kind of thing, I may be grieving the Holy Spirit, but I'm not losing my salvation. It may feel like it, depending on what you've done, but you're sealed for the day of redemption. Once you are a son of God, you're never unsunned or undaughtered. <laughs> it may feel like it, and it may be horrible, and you may have a long way to get back and to be right with God, but you're still sealed for the day of redemption. And when you let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and, and uh, malice control your life, it's very easy, isn't it? That can happen. And that whole time you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Rather, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, really, that's meekness, isn't it? Not having to get your own pound of flesh or your own way all the time, or giving people a piece of your mind you can ill afford to lose. But being kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving like Christ. We're to be imitators of God as beloved children, he'll go on to say in the next verse, and, and uh, we're to love one another in that regard. And we do that with patience. I hate that word. You know, I'm pretty good at one time forgiving my brother. How many times am I forgiving my brother? Seven times what? Seventy. That's what I call patience. That's the definition of patience. How many times you have to forgive somebody? 490. And if you ever get to that point, you probably are to keep forgiving him even after that, right? But instead, we can get bitter, we can get sour, we can get just almost militaristic about the whole thing. Um, with patience, the word is macrothemia, long-suffering with others, uh, showing forbearance, tolerance to others in love. And that's how we maintain unity in a practical sense. Um, all these virtues are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, against which things there are no law. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing when those are on display in not only 
each individual life, but in the corporate life of the church. That's what maintains unity in the church in a very practical way. You see, the Christian life is a supernatural life empowered by the Spirit of God. And all we are told to do, verse 4, is to be diligent to work hard at maintaining or preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I like that. In other words, the unity is already in the church. We are not responsible to create it. You know, there's been a lot of movements that have tried to create unity in the church. Uh, Probably the most prominent was the ecumenical movement, uh, you know, where you kick doctrine out and everybody just kind of gets together because uh, they know the name of Jesus or something. Uh, That's not right. Unity is much more than just that. The unity is already there. We don't create it. You say, well, how do we preserve it? Well, verses 4 through 6, by believing and acting upon the word of God in answer to Jesus' prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And when we practice that, and when we're in the Father and in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Son is in the Father is in the Son and in us, and then the world sees that we are unified, perfected in unity because of our doctrinal stance and because of our practices based on that doctrinal stance. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, it would take a sermon to define each one of these points, but suffice it to say there's only one body, there's only one church with Christ as the head. There is one spirit who indwells every true believer, one hope uh, of our calling, the, the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again conquering sin and death, and that he offers you and I, the free gift of eternal life, and all we have to do is receive it as the gift that it is. And that's what we'd be offering this morning to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know the gospel, that's the, the simplicity of the gospel. Christ died for your sins. According to the scriptures, he was the promised Messiah from eons past. He came in response to the Father's will carried out the Father's will to redeem mankind, to forgive our sins. He proved that by conquering sin and death. On the third day, he arose, and he offers you eternal life. And I would encourage you to uh, consider that. Consider the fact that you cannot save yourself, just like you cannot manufacture uh, unity. You cannot manufacture your own salvation. It's a gift from God. It's a work of the Spirit. It's, a, it's something that's given, not something we earn. And uh, I would just encourage you to, to really consider that. Uh, if you'd like to talk to Craig or myself or Steve after he's commissioned, um, or I- anybody here who knows the gospel, uh, we'd like to uh, tell you about the free gift of eternal life. The wages of sin is death. We're all going to die. That's why people die, is because of sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I can't buy it. I can't do enough good works to get it. I just have to receive it. It seems so simple. But people have, religion has so complicated things beyond belief that people can't believe. Sad thing. Anyway, getting off track here a little bit. Um, where were we? Okay, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, uh, one faith, once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3 says, as Peter says, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ, in the word of God. There's one baptism, I believe, referring to the fact that we've been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, of which water baptism is just a picture. And lastly, it says there's one God. There's not many gods, and there's not multiple gods, and not everything that supposedly is a god in religions is a god, but there is one true God manifests in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's it. And it says, God the Father, He's the Father of all, who is over all, and, I, and through all, and I love this, and in all. You can check that out in Ephesians 3 and John chapter 14. You see, unity of the Spirit is, first of all, a unity that is supernaturally founded in the truth of God's Word, and we preserve it as we faithfully preach and teach and live out the truths of God's Word in, a daily, in our daily lives, humbly, meekly, patiently, forbearingly, and lovingly, it tells us right here. It's not something we create or try to manufacture, but it's something we work hard at diligently maintaining. The unity of spirit is, first of all, built upon true, sound doctrine, and it plays out in our everyday lives as we put that doctrine into practice. Now, another aspect of unity, a second aspect, is the diversity of the spirit. This is something that's kind of overlooked sometimes, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll spend the rest of our time in 1 Corinthians 12. And I love the bouncing back and forth in this passage. That will become evident in a second. Paul, as he's talking about the use of spiritual gifts, he says, now there are varieties of gifts. There's over 20 various spiritual gifts that are mentioned that are given by the Spirit of God to individuals to minister with. Okay? And then he'll get to chapter 13 and just say, well, if you can't figure that one out, just love everybody. <laughs> so uh, there's no excuses, right? But he says there's a distribution of gifts, but the same spirit. Notice diversity, unity. The whole distribution of gifts, but the same spirit. They're unified in their use and their power. There are varieties or distributions of ministries and the same Lord. Again, diversity, unity. And then he says, and there are varieties of uh, effects or fruit, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Again, what do we have? Diversity and unity. And then he says, but each, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not for yourself, 
Not to go hide yourself in your room and, and exercise some gift you think you have. But he's, he's saying it's for the common good. Your gift is not for you. Your gift is for me. Your gift is for everybody else. My gift is, you know, I don't, I don't sit there and preach in front of my mirror and go, wow, that was great, and, you know, go off to the beach. You know, my gift of preaching and teaching is for you, not for me although I benefit greatly from it. Then he says, and I love this, he says, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And he keeps, he goes through this, and it's interesting when he says another, he uses the word alas every time he mentions a new gift. He only had to mention that in Greek syntax once, and it would have been understood that it would have been another, 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 but he wants people to get the point to another is given, to another is given, to another is given, diversity, diversity, diversity. And then he ends that section in verse 11. He says, but to one, the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. It's diversity working in unity, always. Not diversity so I can be a greater individual. <laughs> it's Diversity working so I can be a greater blessing to other people. He says, for even as the body is one, unity, and yet has many members, diversity, and all the members of the, one, of the body, unity, though they are many, diversity, are one body, unity, so also is Christ. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, unity. Okay, supernatural placement into the body of Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, diversity, we were all made to drink of one spirit, unity. For the body is not one member, but many. Unity working in diversity. He says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, and I'm experiencing that right now. I was doing a project, and I was walking on a slope too much, and my right foot is killing me, and it doesn't want to be a part of my body. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what? It's staying there. It's, it's not going anywhere because it's part of the body. You know? He says, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? No, it's still my foot. It just hurts. You know, that's the way it is. And it would, it would be nice to just chop it off and... With that great greater problems, but you know it would be nice to just have it not feel bad. So the rest of my body's trying to put up with it and minister to it, right? Yeah. And if the ear says, "Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body," is it for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, you can imagine all these eyeballs rolling in the church, right? And everybody go, "Wow, I see clearly now." But uh, that's not the way it is, right? We're all a different part of the body, just like your human body. Um, and it makes up one unified whole, although every part of your body is diverse. Where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? <laughs> you won't even touch that one. But now God has placed the members, each of them, in the body just as he desired. 
There you see diversity working in unity. You're not here by mistake. You're here because God has placed you here. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, diversity and unity. Now, if anything, this passage brings out the diversity of the Spirit's working as he brings about unity in the body of Christ, the church. Edith Schaefer once wrote a book. I love Francis and Edith Schaefer uh, and all the different things they wrote. Uh, I would encourage you to get a little pamphlet called The Mark of a Christian after this is over. It's by Francis Schaefer. Tremendous book about uh, John chapter 17 and the requests that are being made there. But um, Edith Schaefer once wrote that there are no little people in the body of Christ, the church. Each one of you have been divinely placed here and gifted and empowered for ministry, and God is ready to bear fruit in and through your life. You are a living, breathing, essential part of the body of Christ, and without your life and breath and ministry and love for God, others and others, we are incomplete. The body limps along. It's like you could have a whole body and the arms blacked out and, you know, the knees blacked out and the foot's blacked out. That's kind of how the church is sometimes when people don't minister their spiritual gifts. They don't get involved in each other's lives. They kind of stand aloof. They just kind of show up and are gone. And, and uh, that's what we need to see. We need to see people involved and diverse people adding to the unity of the body. And in Ephesians 4.16, it says the church, the body of Christ, is being built up and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You know, each of us may not be able to do a great deal. You know, that's why we have people on staff, but everybody can do something to add to the unity and work and ministry of the church, can't they? And then it adds up to a great thing. You know, have you ever considered this? Probably 99.99% of the Christians who ever lived, you will never even hear about. And yet, the sum total of that diverse group to the unity of the church, both local and worldwide, is so massive to consider it it blows your mind. But you'll never hear about them. They're not famous. They're not like Billy Graham who preached it. I was reading probably 100 million people. But, you know, they're doing the work of the Lord. They're committed to doing what he would have them to do with their giftedness, with the ministries given them, with the results that he wants to bring forth in their life. I don't have to be Billy Graham. I can just be Bob, you know. And I can be content with that because that's God's called me here to do what I do here. And, and that's good. I don't feel incomplete. I don't feel like I have to strive and find a bigger church and a bigger ministry and a bigger this, a bigger that. You know, God is using your life as he wants, hopefully, if you're submitted to his leading and wanting to do what he would have you to do because he will do that. Some will rise to have great ministries that affect billions of lives and 
And some will just minister to their family and their wife and their kids. And their, some will minister in the body of Christ and will minister to, well, I hope we all minister in the body of Christ, but uh, they may be Sunday school teachers. They may work with the one of They may listen to kids who are doing their verses, you know, those kind of things. But it all adds up to a massive, incredible work when you put all the pieces together. And that's what he's saying here. By that which every joint supplies, by the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, for the church to be functioning properly, we all are needed, gifted, ministering, and bearing fruit through our service to one another. Uh, Hebrews 10.23, in essence, says, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, and all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. Boy, we live in a world where we should understand the day of the Lord is pretty close. So we ought to be busy, all the more, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. So, It's time to let the dog out, right? It's time to let God use our giftedness and develop that ministry you've been thinking about or finally get involved in that ministry you've been praying about to get involved in and let God bring about the fruitfulness in your life that you've been desiring. You are an indispensable part of this church here at OEFC, indispensable. God needs every one of us to be ministering and working with one another. Why? Because God says so. <laughs> Isn't that great to slough it off onto somebody else? God says so. That's the way we're to be. You know, as the word says so, believe it, act upon that truth. There are no little people, no unnecessary people in the body of Christ, the church. You know, Juana is constantly asking for people, pathway to freedom. Uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of ministries, Bible studies, Sunday school. There's, there's this, there's that, people starting Bible study. I think that's the greatest thing in the world. Start a Bible study in your home. Teach it. You know, all you got to do is know more than the per people who are coming for that particular Bible study. That makes it even easier. You know, uh, we got man-to-man -man and woman-to-woman -woman coming up real soon within the next couple months. We're going to actually be talking about that tonight, but uh, get involved in that. Get involved in a discipleship relationship with another man or another woman if you're a woman. and uh, Or on your own, just grab somebody and say, let's get together and talk about the Scripture. You know, there's got to be somebody that knows less than we do, so find them and teach them. Sounds simple, doesn't it? So we see the unity of the Spirit, a unity based and founded in the truth of God's Word, and we see the diversity of the Spirit, how the Spirit of God takes and empowers each individual in the church and brings them together into one unified whole for the common good, just as God desires. And that's because, thirdly, the mutuality of the Holy Spirit Look with me at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 and following. He says, the eye cannot, and here he's addressing a whole different issue. 
The, guy, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Your eye decides not to work, and you're in trouble, right? You can kind of feel your way around, but you're not going anywhere fast. Uh, the eye and the hand work in unison. It cannot say, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. If your head wants to go somewhere, if your feet don't want to go, they're not going. I've been proving that lately. And uh, that's the way it goes. They need to work in unison. They need to be mutually working together. You know, when we have problems with that, we call it cerebral palsy. Something that's treated by a doctor. It says, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on them we bestow more abundant honor, and less presentable members become much more presentable. I got to thinking about that, and I got to thinking about Matthew 20, 20 through 28, where you know, the, the disciples want to be somebody great, like the great men of the world, you know, exercise power and authority over everybody. And Jesus said, no, no, no. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. First among you shall be your slave. What does it take to be a servant or a slave? Not much. Just submission to the master. Anybody can be great in the kingdom of God if you want to be a servant, and if you want to be a slave to others. Then he says, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, so that there may be, what? No division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another he says, and when one, one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members are honored with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. If I were to summarize these verses in a few words, I would just say, we need each other. Isn't that incredible? We need each other. <laughs> we really do. We may not act like we need each other, and we may not think we need each other, but we really do need each other. And when we act like that, and when we operate our lives like that, great things happen. Amazing things happen. It's not individuality being emphasized here, it's mutuality. Our need for one another, unity, diversity, all working in mutuality. The eye needs the hand, verse 21. The head needs the feet. The more prominent members need the weaker members. The weaker members need the more honorable members. The less presentable need the more presentable. And the vice versa, those that lack need those that don't lack, and vice versa. Why, verse 25, so that there may be no division or schism or no disunity in the church, but that we have the same care for one another. So that anyone suffers, we suffer with them. When anyone's blessed, we're happy for them. We're excited about it, what God is doing in their life. You know, those two extremes, happy, suffer, uh, and everything in between. That's the beauty of the body of Christ when it's working with unity, diversity, and mutuality. You see, that's 
the mutuality of the Spirit when we rejoice with one another, when we suffer with one another. No person is an island unto themselves. And if you are, you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings you'll ever experience this side of heaven. When you're going through something, tell people. Put it on the prayer chain. Do, do what you need to do to get to call the troops to your aid and experience the blessing. When someone else suffers or someone else is blessed, gather around them. Rejoice with them or suffer with them and commiserate with them. And uh, I was just talking to somebody this week, and I just mentioned something. I said, how's it going? And, and they just broke down. And they told me what, what was going on in their life. And, and uh, I told them what was going on in my life, and we commiserated, prayed for each other. And, you know, it's, it's, it was incredibly uplifting <laughs> to do that. Because we're here to mutually be a benefit to one another, although we are very diverse. We're different. So again, let the dog out. Let people minister to you and pray for you. Let them know about and minister to your needs, and mutually you do the same for them as the Spirit of God leads you. That's where friendships are forged. That's where the love of God is turned loose. We need one another. You're thinking, nah, I don't need those other Christians. They're a bunch of losers. <laughs> I don't. Don't think like that. There's such tremendous blessing right, sitting right next to you, you can hardly fathom it. Because we're mutually diverse and unified. Well, you know, that's kind of church 101. It's good to be reminded. I know I was blessed being reminded of these things again this week. I, I remember as a young Christian, I heard a sermon similar to this that just really touched my life and made me want to go into ministry full time. Why not do it full time? You know, we, any one of us can do it full time. You know, whether we're on the job, whether we're here, whether we're out in the world, we can show that kind of unity, diversity, and mutuality of people. And as a church gathered, we really show it. It's incredible what can happen when the church is gathered. You know, that's Church 101. It's always has been and always will be. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, What? A new commandment I give unto you that you what? love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And he says, By this the world will know what? that you are my disciples. Unity, diversity, mutuality. All working together, all empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And when we experience the unity and diversity and mutuality of the Holy Spirit in the church, the world will look on and say, Behold how they love one another, and that the Father truly sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And they truly are the church. You know, the church can be the greatest advertisement for the gospel that there is in the world. People look at us and go, man, there is something different about those people. Or they can look at us and go, ugh. You know, those people are just like everybody else. They're just like the Elks Lodge or whatever. 
and I have nothing against the Elks Lodge, but it's just a social organization. Church is not a social organization. The church is a group of people brought together by the Spirit of God, gifted, empowered, and he will bear fruit through our lives. That's what we're all about. That's Church 101. And, and uh, we are a giant billboard to the world of the gospel, and I hope they're seeing the message. <laughs> you know, I hope they're seeing it in this church. I hope they're seeing it in every church that preaches the true gospel as it's presented in the Word of God and sticks to the Word of God and preaches it faithfully because that's what we're to do. We're not always trying to come up with something new. You know, my, my goal as a preacher is to be as unoriginal as I possibly can according to this book. I hope you understand what I just said because that's what makes the church the church. Sanctify them in the truth Thy word is truth. Let's pray.